Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 7th of July. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by CEC researcher Richard Barton. Welcome Richard. Thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, Australia can help to de-escalate the North Korea crisis and stop the great electricity ripoff, nationalise Australia's power supply. Before we get started, I just want to remind uh, viewers, what we discuss in the CEC report is elaborated at length in our weekly publication, the Australian Alert Service. So if you want to know more, call in on our free toll-free number to order a free copy of that publication, and we'll try and remind you later. And it's also worth considering getting it regularly as well. Okay, but first, let's get started because we have quite a crisis on our hands. Australia can help to de-escalate North Korea crisis. And the big issue, Richard, is we've just had this intercontinental ballistic missile test, which mm. is the first intercontinental one, right? Yeah, they've had other ballistic missiles, but they've all been shorter range ones. So, yeah. you know, a few hundred or a thousand kilometres range, whereas this one's supposed to be... They've calculated that it could potentially reach as far as nine and a half... Uh, sorry, six and a half thousand kilometres. And that puts, us, that puts us in the firing range as well. Yeah, Darwin, possibly the northwest... Um, depending on, depending on uh, you know that extra few hundred kilometres. So what reach. what viewers would recognise has been a huge amount of alarm over this, and as we speak, the G20 meeting in in Hamburg and Germany is about to start. This is going to dominate discussions there. Um, all the conversations about this is you know China can do something about this, and Australia's <laughs> beating up on China. China's got to do something about this, and we're really, really, really alarmed. But what we're going to go through is there's a bit of a dichotomy here because there are there's more than one way to handle it, mm. short of World War III, and let's just uh, give people a bit of a sense of that. Um, in terms of the G20 meeting, uh, the other significant thing about it is not that it's going to discuss North Korea. Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin get to meet for the first time. Mm. And this has been the issue that the intelligence agencies and the establishment apparatus of especially the United States and the United Kingdom have been hammering Trump over since he got elected. They've been, because the thing they hate about Trump the most, as imperfect as he is, and that's, that's, a, one, that's a way of putting it, one way of putting it imperfect, <laughs> he had an instinct of wanting to have better relations with Russia mm. and there's a whole apparatus that doesn't want that to happen. So we have to see what happens in this first meeting between the two today. The Washington Post gloated the other day, is Donald Trump boxed in um, and therefore won't be able to do much when he meets with well, Putin, right? They, they've been one of the main drivers of the campaign to make sure that happened. Exactly. Now, Trump, you know, back to Korea, he has conflicting tendencies. One, which is not great, he puts a lot of faith in the military. And if you put faith in the, what, the thing with the military, bless them, is they tend to see military solutions to all problems. Yeah, it's like General Wesley Clark said, if you're, if you're a hammer, all you see is nails. That's right. So, and that's, and that's an issue, right? And the military structures of the Trump administration, there's milit key military people at every level of it, and it's actually a worry. That's, that's, so that's, that's a, one tendency. However, he personally thinks outside the box, and that's actually, a, a, it can be a good thing. And one of the evidences of that is, is when this blew up in March, around Easter time, Trump said something that freaked everybody out. He said, I'd like to meet Kim Jong-un. And then he actually expressed empathy for his position as the president of Korea. Said it'd be a, said, uh, Trump said he was having a tough enough job and he couldn't imagine having to take over running a country at the age of 26. Exactly, exactly. And this is, and of course, 
then the, the, the establishment in, in the US said, no, 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 because they, they keep, their, their whole strategy depends on marginalising their enemies, dehumanising them so people don't think of them as, as um, uh, you know, normal human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And Trump, though, could have pursued something there. So that's an interesting tendency he's got. Now, it's important to note how we got to this position. Let me just recap it quite quickly. In the 1990s, there was real progress to denuclearize the entire Korean Peninsula. And it got to the point, and this was happening, uh, Pyongyang shut down nuclear reactors and everything, yeah. right? And this, got, this progressed to the point that in the year 2000, at the Sydney Olympics, September 2000, the two Koreas marched together in the opening ceremony. And just mm -hmm. have a quick, quick look at a clip of that. Sorry about the hazy quality, but it was a long time ago. Just look at how significant that was. So you can tell there from the commentators, Sandy, it's a really moving thing, right? This was a this has been an attractive, attractive, seemingly intractable um, conflict since you know the, the late '40s, and here finally the two Koreas were marching together, and with as you know, Richard, they're still officially at war, right? Mm, yeah, the, there was only ever a, an armistice, never a um, peace treaty. There was there exactly. was never a conclusion to the to the war. So that's real progress. What happened? Well, in January 2002. George W. Bush, after 9-11, gave a speech at the State of the Union for, in the United States where he declared North Korea, Iraq and Iran were the axis of evil. And then what did he proceed to do? This guy, Bush and, and Cheney and Tony Blair, etc., went in. They, they said Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which it didn't. So they invaded them and destroyed the country. In response to that, Gaddafi in Libya, who'd also been a bit of a rogue state on the side, mm. he said, well, I'm giving up my, I want to be a good citizen, I'm going to give up my WMDs. He, did, he, he stopped the, any program, they didn't have a nuclear program, but you know, chemical weapons no. and whatever. Yeah, biological weapons, that sort of thing. Handed over the stockpile. What happened to him? Invaded, destroyed Libya. And right? assassinated on a camera. Exactly, and assassinated on camera. And frankly, the Koreans got the message. The only way to defend yourself from regime change is to really have weapons of mass destruction, especially nuclear weapons. And that's what they've been developing ever since as a deterrent and a defensive measure. I just want you to quickly listen to a Russian career expert who's based at the Australian National University, Dr. Leonid Petrov. He was on TV last night, 6th of July here in Australia on Sky News. He basically summarises this succinctly. 
which they, uh, you know, enemies who surrounded the uh, Korea, peace-loving and uh, free and prosperous Korea, are trying to push uh, the um, the regime into into the brink of nuclear abyss. That's why North Koreans need the nuclear capability. They believe that the only way to survive, the only way to defend their motherland, is to build um, a strong nuclear uh, deterrence. Uh, in many ways, it is a psychological deterrence. On one nuclear device would be enough simply to prevent any uh, invasion of uh, Iraqi or Libya type. Uh, North Korea learned uh, the one lesson uh, that never give up your weapons, never uh, stop your nuclear program or weapons of mass destruction must not be stopped at any moment because the enemies are going to use this lull and uh, invade and, and change the regime. So let's look at the alternatives here. You can either have World War Three by you know some big preemptive strike, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is everyone's talking about like it's the only option. No, it's not the only option. Um, North Korea, Richard, has an offer on the table mm -hmm. that Russia and China, China especially, is urging the West to accept. And if you know this offer, I think Australia, if we are serious that we feel targeted by this country. Mm -hmm we should also be helping to persuade the United States to accept this offer. And because the offer of North Korea is it will end nuclear tests if the United States and South Korea end their military exercises. Now, just explain why these exercises are such an issue for North Korea. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, for one thing, they're a dress rehearsal for an invasion and a you know, decapitation of the government, you know, wreck the whole country. But another issue is that's been, you know, for a long time, the original offer, I believe, was just for them to move the exercises to a different part of the year because North Korea has a relatively small population. I mean, about the same as ours, a little more, 25 million or so. They have six and a half million military personnel, about a million of those active, the rest on reserve. But they need every hand, you know, all decks on, all hands on deck to, uh, for the rice planting and the rice harvest. So April, May, and then August. Because I understand that when they split, South Korea had the best agriculture, North Korea had the yeah, best South, industry. South Korea, the, the bulk of the industry is in the north, and the bulk of the arable land is in the south. south. So they're not food secure, and the situation is not as bad as it was in the 90s. Say, if you remember, in 97, there was mm. a big famine and everything. But the... They need this full yeah, mobilisation to do their planting yeah. and harvesting. Last year, they actually had to pull all of the students out of universities to go and plant the rice because... They didn't have the manpower because, and they've done it again this year, the, the um, South Korea US military exercises are always held in the planting and or harvest seasons deliberately to, you know, to undermine their, their security. Because, they, their because security. the North Koreans can't afford to no, they, think that they're just exercises so we'll ignore them. They yeah. actually have to be in case they're not yeah. exercising. As I said, every one of these things is an open dress rehearsal for an invasion and you never know if it's going to be the real deal one day. And the military therefore can't participate in the planting and no, harvest. They've got no, to they go and man be, the barricades. They have to be on alert. You know, they can to some extent, but at least the active service and a fair bit of the reserve have to be available at short notice. So. And this is a, so this is a severe aggravation for the North Koreans yeah. all the time. Yeah, and they've been complaining about this for decades. Yeah, and even if, and just to follow, even if this planting wasn't involved, though, uh, this, this wasn't a factor, just the fact of the exercise, they're still, a, like, no mm. country likes those no, kind no of exercises. No one would put up with that. I mean, would we put up with some hostile foreign power holding um, invasion rehearsals in New Guinea? No. I don't think so. 
So what, so what the North Koreans have said is, in the exercises, we'll end our military program. There's an option on the yeah. table right there. That's not to say don't have, your, don't have military personnel in South Korea, etc. Just mm. these exercises, yeah. end them, we'll end our nuclear program. Yeah. That's, right? that's the gist of it, yeah. So and that's been on the table. That's been repeatedly rejected by the Obama administration and by the Trump administration uh, now as well, at least three times since 2015. But the Chinese are saying, look, that is an eminently reasonable request. Russia and uh, Putin and Xi have just had a meeting about it and, and they, they support that request. Mm. And that's the other side of the equation that doesn't get reported in the press. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, to the viewer, if our government was truly serious about we are under such a, a direct, clear and present threat from North Korea, they would be pursuing that kind of diplomacy to say, come on, let's give a little and take a little here. Given that there's a history to this that mm. we set up with our lying wars of, of regime change that we're committed to, they could say, okay, let's try this a different way and de-escalate it. And if, and if they're not doing that, it tells you they're not serious mm. and they're just trying to be, you know. Yeah, because it's not as if we don't know that that model doesn't work by now. That's right. We're still bogged down in Afghanistan. No, that's, that's exactly right. What, what have we got out of what we've, the war on terror and all that whole stuff, the regime change for the last 15 years? Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about electricity in Australia. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Stop the great electricity ripoff. Nationalise Australia's power supply. So Australia, Richard, is in an energy crisis. You could say that. We, and and it's, it's, it's severe and it's having a big effect on not just consumers paying their bills, which is bad enough and it's actually quite bad, but industry. Mm. And that has a knock-on effect for, to all consumers, right? Yep. Um, we are dismantling ourselves. And the problem is this crisis is entirely self-inflicted. Electricity prices do not have to be anywhere near this high. And in fact, we say they should be no more than one third of what they currently are, mm. right? And that, so we're, we're going to go through three main factors that are contributing to the power prices which we have that is all fluff. It's all rubbish and they sh shouldn't be in the system. So here they are. The first one is privatisation and the national competition policy. The second one is the national electricity market and electricity retailing and the third one is the renewable energy target. So, um, Richard, in the last service, and yesterday we put out a press release, you have reported on this in detail. So let's just explain these things to the viewers. In broad brushstrokes, describe how electricity was described, supplied for decades mm. before privatisation. All right, so what you had were state government owned monopolies that generated, they, they built and owned the generators, they built and owned and maintained the distribution network, and they sold the electricity to businesses and households. So everything was done under one roof, actually a very efficient system, despite what free marketeers will tell yep, you. Yep. Um, and there was none of this, you know, price fluctuations, there was none of these all these costs associated with managing the market here, there, and you know, supplying power. They, they recalculate it every five minutes or something, what the demand is. And back then, in the case of Victoria especially, which is Australia's biggest manufacturing state, mm. the state government even owned the coal that, yeah. they, that they burned. So like, everything was done so cheap it wasn't funny. Yeah, the Latrobe Valley um, brown coal. They built the power station on the edge of the coal reserve, built a conveyor belt, yep. dumped it in, 
put it up, dried it, burnt it, turned the turbines, sent the power off. That was it. All right, so let's go through the changes that has happened chronologically. What changes did national competition policy force? All right, there's a thing called the principle of competitive neutrality. And for all that these guys always go on about how private enterprise is more efficient than the government, if you read that, um, the agreement that set this up in 1995, they actually specify that uh, state-owned enterprises have to give up their competitive advantage. They're not allowed to be more They're efficient. They're not allowed to be as efficient as they could be so that these private companies can compete, i.e. so they can rip off money out of the population that should be either going in people's pockets or going back into tax revenue. And, and this actually became a, an impetus for privatisation. Government said, well, under this, we should actually privatise. But even when they didn't privatise, they corporatised anyway yeah. and did the same thing. Yeah, so now everything, especially with electricity, they broke up the uh, generators, the, distrib the distribution network, and the, <coughs> excuse me, the retail into three separate businesses, all of which are expected to behave as if they're private for-profit companies, even when they're not. So they privatised the generators first and then the, uh, the generators and the retail businesses. And now certain states, um, New South Wales, the most recent, are privatising the distribution as well. I mean, these are what you call natural monopolies. These should yeah, not yeah. be privatised. There's no competition. You know, it's a captive market. Yep. So Now, um, I, I was going to go through the how Macquarie Bank, I'll just state it, Macquarie Bank, design national competition policy mm. and more than any other financial institution in Australia it's benefited as a, from the consequential electricity privatisations that happen but we, I was going to go into more detail though we don't have time just back to electricity just describe then the flow on into we've now got this electricity market and how does this retailing thing work as a cost? Yeah. Well you've got umpteen different you've got three major retailers um, all duplicating each other's services and padding the bills out with those costs um, and you know, a, a plethora of these upstart minor companies that offer a good deal for a little while and then hit you even harder than the big guys yeah. do because they can't afford not to. And they pop up, they go out of business. Um, but another aspect of it is there's this um, hedging on the, the prices on the spot market because there's a, there's a spot market, there's con you, you can buy electricity on contract and then outside of that you've got to buy it on the spot market and that fluctuates anywhere between uh, a cap of $14,200 a megawatt hour. Even today, the highest normal wholesale prices are around just over 100. 100 yeah. But down to a price floor of minus 1,000 to force generators to pay money to the, to the market operator. And we want to put on the screen, <laughs> we want to put on the screen some, some of this report that shows an official report here that's, that's giving generators the formulas they use mm. for their hedging. These are companies that should be just worried about providing electricity and they have to engage in this hedging yeah, they've, instead. They've got to get, I mean, this is, this is the kind of maths that was behind the moonshot yeah. and they're using it for pricing electricity. Yeah. It's, it's insane. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll continue this afterwards. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the electricity crisis in Australia while we need to nationalise our power supply. Richard, you make the point in your article that perhaps the biggest single cause of the current crisis is the renewable energy target. Now, of course, that's premised on the fact the world's coming to an end if we don't cut carbon dioxide emissions, yep. which we dispute. 
Before we go into the details of the RET, I just I, I want to show viewers what Al Gore predicted about the world coming to end when he gave his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in 2007. Watch this. Last September 21st, as the northern hemisphere tilted away from the sun, scientists reported with unprecedented alarm that the North Polar ice cap is, in their words, falling off a cliff. One study estimated that it could be completely gone during summer in less than 22 years. Another new study to be presented by U.S. Navy researchers later this week warns it could happen in as little as seven years. So if that prediction, Richard, had have come true, the um, Arctic ice would have disappeared by 2013. So here's the very latest satellite photo of ice coverage in the Arctic from last week at the height of summer. Just have a quick look at that. That's not exactly disappeared ice, nope. right? It's full of it. It's actually grown much bigger in the last couple of year or so. So Richard, back to the renewable energy target. What has been the impact of that on electricity prices and production? All right, well, for starters, it uh, adds about a $3 billion a year uh, subsidy to you know, prop up the expenses of these ridiculous windmills and solar panels. And most of that goes into people's power bills, which are already, you know, you're already paying about a third of your, of your bill um, goes to this nonsense retail system that we were talking about before yeah, the break. Yeah. This adds on top of that. Um, so that's another huge expense. I mean, think you can build a power, you can build a, a 1,000 megawatt coal plant for a, about two thirds of that. And that's a reliable baseload supply, whereas renewable whereas is up and down. Except for, uh, except for, except for hydro, hydro. But they're not building good. those either because no. of so-called environmental concerns. So they've yeah. got you coming and going. But the other problem, the bigger problem with the RET is that the way that this carbon pricing on and off um, and just the, the climate, if you like, that it's created for investment means nobody wants to put money into, into building coal-fired power stations. So all our old plant, most of it was built 50 years ago, like Hazelwood here in Victoria, um, some of the plants that have shut down in New South Wales and Queensland as well. You know, this is, they're, they're good, but they're old and yeah. relatively inefficient. But because of this renewable energy target and this fixation on completely pointless carbon reduction, even if you believe in the global warming hypothesis, it's not, it's not gonna make any difference at all. And they acknowledge that, the people behind it acknowledge that, it's mm. purely symbolic, but it prohibits investment in the baseload capacity that we need to have affordable power, to have industry. And as we lose these industries, of course, you lose, you lose high tech, uh, sorry, you lose high paid wages. So the government loses tax revenue, you know, these generators should not have to run at a profit themselves. The profit is what you generate in the activity the of the economy. economy. That's right. And imagine how businesses that do employ lots of people, what it would be like for them if suddenly they could have a, a power bill that's a third of what they're paying at the moment, mm -hmm. right? We'd have a competitive car industry. The idea our car industry wasn't competitive would be rubbish. Competitive steel industry, competitive aluminium industry. Yeah. We could have that all again, yeah. but they don't want it. Because, of course, all of that was built off the back of the the coal-fired cheap power that they, I don't think they even raised prices in 20 years. So if you want, if you the viewer want to go back to a time when we have electricity that we can afford, there's only one way to do it. This privatisation thing has been a disaster. Even the head of the ACCC, Rod Sims at the start of the year said, it didn't work, nothing's cheaper, it's all more expensive. Mm -hmm. 
we have to renationalize. Once upon a time, people thought, oh, that, you know, political reality has moved on. No, Jeremy Corbyn nearly won election in the UK mm. the other day on a plan platform of renationalization. Yep. That's what's required here in Australia. None of this pussyfooting around anymore. Get these things back in public hands. Stop letting the public be ripped off. And that's exactly. what we've got to demand. Richard, thanks very much for your input today. Thank thanks you. to the viewers. Remember, anything you want to know, call in and get a free copy of the Australian Alert Service. Thanks for watching the CEC report. Thank you.